the Blue Mosque in Kuala Lumpur is one of the largest mosques in the world, and I've visited often, usually with a group of students. On one occasion, our guide, a young Malay man in his early 30s, had a copy of the Quran, which was in Arabic, and he translated from the Arabic into English the introduction. It went like this. Blessed be Allah, the gracious and the merciful, the Lord of Judgment Day. As we went on our tour of the mosque, someone came up next to our guide and said, with respect, how do you know that Allah is gracious and merciful? Oh, our guide said, because the Holy Quran says so. But the questioner said, but what has Allah done in history to prove that he's gracious and merciful? As you know, we are followers of the God of the Bible, who also claims to be gracious and merciful, but he has acted in history to back up that claim. Now, today we come to a piece of historic narrative in the Bible. Did you know that 43% of the Bible is made up of literature just like this? That's all historic narrative. It's about what God is actively doing in history. In fact, when you look at the Bible from Genesis to the last book, Revelation, you'll see that history is progressing in a very rational way and the book of Revelation tells us how that intelligent, progressive way is going to end historically in Revelation. So I put it to you today that God expects his people to be good readers of history. And by reading history, we are getting glimpses into reality. So we're reading Judges, and that's giving us a glimpse into reality. Now, as I look back on the history of my life, I can remember, I think the first memory I have is the death of King George VI. I remember the death of President Kennedy, his assassination. I remember Neil Armstrong walking on the moon. I remember the catastrophe of the Twin Towers. I, of course, remember with you the death of our monarch, Elizabeth II. I can remember births, I can remember deaths, I can remember marriages. Is history random? Is it just sort of developing on? What sort of worldview do I have? And I want to encourage you today to build a God-honouring worldview, reading history and using this event, this incident in the book of Judges to build that God-honouring worldview. How do you cope with watching the evening news on television? What does it do to the way you read history. Well, let's look at the bare facts here. Judges chapter three. Uh, The year is 1330 BC. Israel has left bondage from Egypt. They've entered Canaan. There's an alliance of local tribes, Moabites, Ammonites, Amalekites. Eglon, the king of Moab, is the leader of the alliance. They resist Israel. And in fact, they dominate Israel for 18 years, so much so that Israel has to pay tax or tribute to them. In 1312, on one of these tax-paying trips, the delegation pay their tax and leave, and Eglon, the, uh, Ehud, the leader of the delegation, comes back to Eglon's palace, and he assassinates him. Ehud escapes, he calls Israel to arms, and Israel cuts down the Moabites, and 10,000 Moabites are killed. And so they have peace in the land till about 1230 BC, peace for 80 years. Now, friends, there is the bare, whitewashed, secularised version. That's what you would see on television. There is oppression, there is an assassination, and there is peace. But there's more to it than that. And Yahweh, God, wants us to get the full story, not just the sanitised version. 
And all readers of history will know that the first clue to reading history accurately is you need to put it into context. You'll never understand why World War happened unless you put it, World War I happened unless you put it in context. Or World War II, or the Vietnam War, or the Ukraine invasion, you need to put it into context. And so here, context is vital. Go back, if you would, to page uh, Joshua, page 366. And here we are told the context of what is happening. In page 366, Joshua chapter 23, verse 12. Listen to what Joshua, who is about to die, tells the people who've come into the land, the people of God. If you turn away, verse 12, and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs, thorns in your eyes, until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Now, there is the warning. It's good context, isn't it? Come over now to Judges chapter 1 and have a look on page 370, what actually happened. The tribe of Judah, verse 19, the Lord was with the men of Judah, verse 19, Judges 1. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains. Verse 21, the Benjamites, however, did not drive out the Jebusites. Verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bethshan. Verse 29, nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, neither did Zebulon drive out the Canaanites. Verse 32, the Asherites lived among the Canaanites. In other words, what God warned them not to do is precisely what the people did. Now come over to page 372. And we read at verse 14 of Judges chapter 2, in his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of the raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Verse 16, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Verse 18, Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge. He saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. Verse 20, therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, because this nation has violated the covenant I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use those nations to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. Now, friends, that is the context. And in chapter 3, we are seeing an example of the Lord's testing of his people, his judgment of Israel, and yet his merciful deliverance of Israel as well. So, second, number one, get your context right. Number two, let's read the primary source. Come with me now to Judges chapter 3, verse 12. And we read here that the writer says that Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And we didn't hear about him in the sanitised version. The Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. And the alliance was so successful, verse 13, that they even took the city of Jericho, the city of Palms. Verse 15. 
Israel cries out to the Lord. And the one who strengthened Eglon now raises up a deliverer, Ehud. Now notice that. Look back at verse 12. Two references to the Lord. Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord raised up Eglon. Verse 15, two references to Israel crying out to the Lord and the Lord raising up a deliverer. Now look at verse 15 and underline it. I've got a church Bible and I'm underlining it. It's good for the church to know that we're using the Bibles well. And notice that we're told that Ahud is of the tribe of Benjamin. Ah, we've got a son called Benjamin. That means son of my right hand. But he's a left-handed son of my right hand. Isn't that unusual? And then I look up the Hebrew word for left-handed and there is no Hebrew word, which is the original language of the Old Testament, for left-handed. The word is literally, he's crippled in the right hand. He's a disabled man. And in Israel, you're either right-handed or you're a cripple. If you're a left-handed, you're a cripple. And so here is this left-handed son of my right hand, and he's got a long dagger. Look, verse 16, I'll translate this for you. It's 45 centimetres long. Hey, that's 18 inches, okay? That's a long dagger. And he's got it strapped to his right thigh. And he gets into the king's palace, verse 19, and you see this obese king. I've got a secret message for you, O king. And he's inquisitive, verse 20. I've got a secret message from God for you. And he uses the general name for God. And with vivid description, Ahud reached with his left hand, his good hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and he plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. Ahud did not pull the sword out and the fat closed in over it. Where did this happen? In the king's favourite room. Do you see how it is described in verse 24? He's on the upper room, so he's upstairs. That's unusual. But he's got an inner room in the upper room. He's got a toilet upstairs. Most unusual. Most toilets in the ancient Near East were out the back and away from the building. This bloke's so rich that he's got an inside toilet, but he's got an upstairs inside toilet. It's his favourite room. So he loves sitting there. Verse 25, the people wait to the point of embarrassment. He's in his favourite room again. You can imagine the associates saying. Verse 25, they open the door. And there is a comic element to it, is it? They saw their Lord fallen on the toilet floor, dead. And Ahud makes good his escape. Look at verse 28. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. Isn't that great faith? The battle's won, even before it's fought. We haven't raised a sword. But I know that the Lord has given our enemies into our hands. Now, friends, there is the full news. Verse 12. Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord strengthens Eglon. Verse 15, Israel cry to the Lord and the Lord raises up Ahud. And Ahud, verse 28, says, follow me for the Lord has given your enemy into your hands. Israel, forget God. God is just and he punishes them in the form of Eglon. They repent and God is merciful and he rescues them through the hand of Ahud. 
and they have rest for 80 years. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. And that's omitted from the bare facts. Most people today would look at history, whatever's happened in history, and they'd say, oh, that's, that's a matter of random coincidence. Israel does evil. Coincidentally, Eglon has power over Israel. Israel repents. Coincidentally, Ehud rises up. Uh, by coincidence, Ehud is left-handed, very rare, but it gets him into Eglon's presence. And Ehud escapes, coincidentally, because the people think that the king is relieving himself in the upper room, inner room. If you omit the Lord, you're left with random coincidence. Or, in our day, if you focus not on the Lord, but on others, isn't Ehud brilliant? Israel must have had a very shrewd deliverance committee. Look at the geopolitical factors. Look at the economic factors. The Lord strengthened. The Lord raised up. He has given our enemy into our hands. So, friends, what do we make of this today? We make of it, I put it to you, three things. First, the Lord is active in history. History is his story. He's involved. Or to put it in the words of Colin, nothing takes God by surprise. Nothing takes God by surprise. The Apostle Paul says the history is the arena of God expressing his wrath and justice and his mercy. Wrath and justice, Eglon. His mercy, Ehud. And Eglon becomes a test to wake his people up. And Ehud is the Lord's deliverer. Nothing takes God by surprise. God is actively at work then and now. Secondly, I want you to see, as Chris has already said, that what is happening in the Old Testament is actually foreshadowing what happens in the New Testament. So you say, well, how do I understand history? Well, you need to understand God. Well, how do I understand God? Well, you need to understand Jesus. Well, how do I understand Jesus? Well, you need to understand the cross. You see, the cross is the key to Jesus. Jesus is the key to God. God is the key to history. You will not understand history apart from the cross. What is history all about? It is the arena in which God is exercising justice and mercy. Eglon and Ehud. But at the cross, he combines that justice and mercy in one event. At the cross, he pours out his judgment on his dear son. And at the cross, he brings humankind to have the opportunity of being reconciled to him. Two in one. It is the trysting place, the hymn writer said, where heaven's love and heaven's justice meet. So what we see here in justice and mercy, Eglon and Ehud, reminds us of the cross. That in one event, our dear Lord Jesus bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might come into relationship with God. And the third thing I want to remind you here is that God will glorify himself not his human instrument. It's remarkable when we get to Gideon, isn't it? 32,000 men, you've got too many. 10,000 men, you've got too many. 300 men. God will glorify himself. And he raises up a disabled, a left-handed non-entity, and it is his very disability that gets him past the security guards into Eglon's palace. And the question is, can God use me? 
Little old me. Yes, God can use you. In your workplace, God can use you. On your campus, God can use you, provided you're weak enough and dependent enough. He esteems the humble and contrite who tremble at his word. So they're the three lessons that you can come to Judges 3 and learn for. God is involved in history. History is his story. All history that God's involved in points to the central fact of the cross. And God glorifies himself because he is God, not the human instrument. But what is the ongoing help of Judges 3 for us today? Uh, We've just come back from the United States in Los Angeles. In Los Angeles, there was a large church which used to have a nationally televised church service every Sunday. And on one occasion, they invited a missionary statesman from London to come all the way from London to the United States to Los Angeles. And when they asked this missionary statesman, whose name was Norman Grubb, do come to our service, he said, do you want me to preach? They said, no, we don't want you to preach. We want you to pray. You want me to pray? All that way to pray. We want you to pray the prayer for which you've become famous. And here's the prayer which Norman Grubb, the missionary statesman from London, prayed in the pulpit that day on national television in the United States. Listen to the prayer. Good morning, Lord. What are you up to today? May I be a part of it? Amen. It's a great prayer, isn't it? Sorry, you didn't think of that. Good morning, Lord. What are you up to today? May I be a part of it? What is God up to today? Has he shifted plan? 8th of January, 2023. What is he up to? God is always up to glorify himself through his just and merciful ways. And he's focused on his people And he will provide tests for them in order that they will have a wake-up call to call upon him so that he will rescue them in their distress. See, look at verse 15 of Judges 3. Israel there is never more God's people than in verse 15, when they cry out to the Lord and he uses Eglon to bring them to that point. And when God's people pray, coincidences happen. And God brings his people to prayer by being just. He hears prayer and he is merciful. So the triune God's purpose is to glorify himself by building a people through the cross who have a vital awareness of who they are, who live consistently with that. Can you memorise that? Well, I've got the advantage and I've tried to memorise it. The, The purpose of the triune God is to glorify himself by building a people through his just and merciful acts at the cross who have a vital awareness of whose they are and who live consistently with that. I may not understand every event which I see on my television, but all events are designed by God to remind me that I am a citizen of his kingdom. I am a sheep in his flock. I am an adopted child at his table. Let's interview a 14th century Israelite. Well, how was it in Israel with Eglon? Well, we did wrong. We followed the Baals. I don't know why we followed the Baals, because the Baals made promises they never kept, and Yahweh made promises he never broke. 
But I suspect that we followed the Baals because we intermarried with Baal worshippers and it's very hard to stand up to your wife, isn't it? But for 18 years, we were raising our children under Moabite wickedness. And I tell you, we looked at each other and we said, we're sick of it. And we prayed to God and he said, I'm sick of it too. And then he raised up a non-entity. None of us knew this bloke. All we knew that he was disabled. His name was Ahud. Don't get me wrong. We deserved the Moabites. We had a covenant with Yahweh and we broke that covenant. We forgot God. And Yahweh used Eglon to wake us up. We cried to God and wouldn't you know it, he was merciful and he raised up Ahud, this deliverer. And now we raise our children in peace and we tell them that their great identity marker is not their ability academically or anything else. Their great identity marker is that they have the privilege of being God's people through his son. And this God who rules the universe has tied his reputation to the welfare of this people. Nothing takes God by surprise. In 2023, the darker the days, the brighter the light, our privileges shine. We build up a vital awareness of our identity, citizens of an eternal kingdom, sinners with an all-sufficient saviour, sheep who have a perfect shepherd, adopted children, who have a father who is sovereign and who loves us, a vital awareness of our identity and that they will live consistently with that. The purpose of the triune God in Judges chapter 3 is to glorify himself by building a people now through the cross, then through his just and merciful acts, who have a vital awareness of whose they are and who live consistently with that. That's a glimpse into reality. And I have that glimpse when I come to Judges chapter 3, that God continues purposefully. Well, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you are gracious and generous to tie your reputation to our welfare. Help us constantly in this new year to realise afresh our true identity, to have a vital awareness of whose we are, citizens of the kingdom that is above, sheep of the flock of the good shepherd, adopted children in a family of a heavenly sovereign father. And we pray that you would empower us to live consistently with that identity. And we praise you in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.